Who is Jeremy Corbyn? What's the future of the democratic left in the United Kingdom? And why does it matter to Americans? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. In America, Jeremy Corbyn is little known outside of Anglophile and left-leaning academics and activists. But if you liked Bernie Sanders, chances are you would like Jeremy Corbyn. In what's been called one of the most important elections in the modern history of the United Kingdom, the election of September 2019 was the worst showing for the left-wing Labour Party in nearly a 100 years. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn was the nominee of the Labour Party. He was defeated by the winner, current Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who was never a well-liked political figure. His approval ratings were deeply in the negative. Also known as Bojo, he's uh, earned a reputation as an untrustworthy buffoon with a sinister history of racism. So what happened, and why should we, on this side of the pond, care As we know, Bernie Sanders said it wasn't just about him. It's about the issues of economic justice, anti-racism, anti-imperialism, and rejecting rabid nationalism. Trump has admired Boris Johnson, of course, who was able to severely crush the left, which has a record of resiliency in England, where there has long been class consciousness, unlike here. So why did Corbyn go down in flames? And what can be learned about the power of cultural conservatism among the working class, about long-standing reliance on British domination of economies around the world, and about anti-immigrant nationalist Brexit emotion, and about the dangers of intentional conflation of criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism? With us today from Somewhere in the English Isles is Matt Zarb-Cousin, who is former spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn and is now director of the Clean Up Gambling Campaign, co-founder of Gamban, which blocks access to gambling sites and apps on devices. Thank you for that. And thanks for being with us, Matt Zarb-Cousin. Thank you for having me, Bert. No, fantastic. And a great introduction. I think you set the scene very nicely. Oh, well, I do try. I do my homework. Let's start with the question. Who is Jeremy Corbyn and where does he fit in with the Labour Party, which has seen leaders like centrist, neoliberal imperialist Tony Blair? Well, as, as you know, in, 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 in the United Kingdom, we have a, two, a two-party system. Really, that's kind of... Um, born out from the, the way we elect our government and our, our, we elect uh, we elect uh, a representative from a constituency, a member of parliament, and it's the party with a majority of members of parliament that, that forms uh, a government and one of those one of the two major parties that has kind of uh, really dominated British politics for very many years is the Labour Party, and the Labour Party is as a result of the two-party system, as you would expect, a very broad church. It does incorporate, exactly as you say, yeah. people who are uh, social democrats, I think all the way down to democratic socialists. And in fact, I think it incorporates liberals, social and economic liberals as well, and that's very much in the Blair mould. And Jeremy Corbyn obviously sits on the democratic socialist wing. He's very left wing. Mm-hmm. And Labour really never had, never had a leader like him before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he came to prominence as a result of the context, and the context being that we lived in a post-financial crisis 
world and economy that hadn't recovered. And the government's policy was to to cut public spending and to, to enact austerity. And I think people were kind of wanting an alternative. And the Labour Party in 2015, when we lost the election, wasn't really offering that alternative. It was just offering to kind of ameliorate what the what the what the government the government agenda was. Um, mm. Oh yes, I mean th- th- that's that's the thing. The Labour Party is, as I was trying to say, the Labour Party is a very broad church, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the result of the way. Uh, results from the way we, we elect the government. And and the Democratic Party here has certainly been a broad tent as well, sometimes to our benefit, oftentimes so diluted, people don't know what we stand for. And some it, it changes from time to time. When you say austerity, that's probably, I mean, people know what austerity means, but how did it, it's not something we hear talked about directly in such terms here in the United States. What, what was Tell us about what the austerity that was going on was and, and how that riled people up. Well, it obviously, um, in the 2007-2008 financial crisis, there was a huge bailout package for the banks because of the um, failure of the mortgage market. And, um, uh, and austerity was a policy enacted by the conservative Liberal Democrat coalition, uh, which came to power in 2010. And what they succeeded in doing was um, making the argument and making the case quite, you know, as in quite effectively that the previous government had overspent and day-to-day spending had got out of control. And that's why the economy was struggling. Um, because, And, you know, really to try to steer away from uh, the failure of the financial sector and the failure of um, uh, regulation, and it was, and they've made it all about all, all about how the previous government were profligate, and we need to get our public finances in order. That was the narrative and the story they told, and they um, set about cutting public spending to try to yeah. reduce the deficit, a deficit that was caused by obviously um, bailing out the banks and the, and the economic impact of that. Mm. Gee, I can't imagine why people got upset. That. And left-wing parties like Labour dominated among the industrial working class in the Midlands and the North, I believe. And I believe the Labour Party is the biggest mass membership party in Europe. So what happened in the normally solid Labour strongholds in the industrial heartlands of the Midlands and North? What, what explains what happened there? Well, I think, I think Brexit happened. I think, I don't, look, um, as a result of, I think, austerity, uh, years of austerity that led up to the um, referendum on our membership of the European Union, the campaign that the, leave, the, the vote leave side ran was effectively an anti-austerity campaign. It was a big red bus that was going through these Labour heartlands with, um, uh, we give £350 million a week to the NHS. Let's, sorry, we give £350 million a week to the EU. Uh, let's fund our NHS instead. So it was basically saying, you know, you've got a choice here. Um, the, the lack of public spending in the last few years can be addressed if we leave the European Union. Uh-huh. It's an anti-austerity argument for leaving the European Union. It really did um, become... A campaign, the Vote Leave campaign became a campaign against the economic status quo, became a, a campaign against business as usual. It mobilized millions of people who had never voted before. 
mm. people who thought who thought in previous elections, what's the point? They're all the same. All of a sudden, you had uh, an opportunity to vote for real change, and they were able to tap into the, the psyche of those those non-voters and, and mobilise them, and, and they did a fantastic job of doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, in the 2017 general election, Labour went into that with a policy of respecting the referendum result and negotiating a Brexit deal that would protect our economy and protect our rights. Um, and in 2019, that, in that period between the 2017 election and 2019 election, that, that policy shifted to um, advocating for a second referendum, mm. which clearly... Um, in the voters that you're talking about in the sort of post-industrial heartlands, mm-hmm. that was that that was a, a massive game changer. Traditionally, I find this interesting, another parallel that right-wing parties like the Tories, the Conservatives, did well among society's upper crust. But in recent times, educated urban professionals, as I understand, have drifted left and the working classes have tilted right not unlike here in the United States. What explains is that? Is that cultural issues? I think um, how, we, how we define and stratify class, I think, is, is pretty outdated in Britain, at the very least. I mean, I can't speak much for the States, but in Britain, we, we still um, use things like educational attainment and uh, qualifications uh, to... to uh-huh. almost act as class class signifiers when in fact i think class can really be better defined by um how much income someone generates from whatever job they do not really about how much uh, you know, how many qualifications they've got we've got a massive demographic in britain of graduates who who are working class because they are struggling to make ends meet they're struggling to even if they've got quali- jobs that require qualifications they're still spending a huge amount of their money on, on rent and, you know, have very little money at the end of the month and struggling to, yeah, to really to, to get on, to get on the housing ladder, to, to buy a property, to mm-hmm. do the things that their parents that their parents did. So I think it's generational and I think uh, I would look beyond traditional class stratification and, and, and in, in so doing, I think you, it's easy to come to the conclusion that but the working class, as it ought to be defined, very much on Labour's side. I would think so, and I would hope so. But what about the issue of immigration? And, you know, looking at, it, at the, the history of uh, formerly Great Britain, uh, you know, it, it, the sun never set on the British Empire. Well, it finally did. But, you know, it's depended <laughs> on, uh, uh, you know, work imperialism, basically, subjugation of... Mm conquered people in India, Africa, Asia, Afghanistan, everywhere. And Britain has overwhelmingly been dominated by white Protestant Christian culture. And being geographically much closer to the wars in the Middle East, how has the issue of immigration played itself out in the UK in the 21st century? And how did this widespread anti-immigrant sentiment affect Corbyn's Labour Party's fortunes? A great question. I think it, uh, look, the anti-immigration sentiment definitely fed into people's attitudes to the European Union because obviously the European Union has the four freedoms, one of which is freedom of movement, which means effectively you know people can move to whichever European state they want to live and work. Um, and this gave people like Nigel Farage and the far right uh, uh, a 
narrative about the European Union uh, and an argument against it, which they sort of built their their case around. And it definitely definitely dominated British 21st century discourse and the the right-wing press have made huge, very, very detrimental impact on the public perception of of migration. And I think... um, uh, you know that succeeded. That that culminated in 2016. What's really interesting is because Labour didn't feed that hatred, because Labour had accepted the result of the referendum post 2016, and Labour's position after that was to you know, obviously would have our own immigration policy, but it'd be subject to fair rules and reasonable management of migration. There was nothing about pulling up the proverbial drawbridge. The conversation, the discourse, almost moved on, and. It's enabled by, I think, in part, uh, obviously, Labour being able to put forward an alternative, a coherent, transformative vision, economic vision, that I think the far right and the anti-migrant sentiments um, across the political spectrum tend to exploit. I think they do exploit economic anxieties. Mm. And I think austerity definitely fuels those tensions and... uh, and if and if you've got a, a party saying we're going to invest in every region of the country and we're going to tax the, the top one you percent know, more to pay for public services and we're going to improve everyone's lives, then you don't create that um, resource scarcity that often leads to people turning against each other. And I think that that was definitely a factor. Interesting. Seems like there were a lot of factors. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Matt Zarb-Cousin, former spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn. We're talking about who is Jeremy Corbyn and what about the left in England? Where is it now? Where does it go from here? And one of the strengths that I thought Bernie Sanders had and still has is being clear about his economic agenda, you know, economic justice uh, for everybody uh, and I, I, Democrats like Bill Clinton and others didn't, they weren't really clear on, on what they stood for and what the alternative was. Um, so, what, what, a couple questions. What does Jeremy Corbyn stand for in terms of, and what is that wing of the party, uh, uh, you know, hoisting up the flagpole that seeing if people salute? And what about the Blairite wing? Is there, is there still a Blairite wing of the, of the Labour Party? What's Tell us about the status of the Labour Party, please. Of course. So there, there is a Blairite wing of the party. Uh, and I think in recent years, that, that wing has, um, which is, tends to be more socially and economic, economically liberal, um, very much more centrist, uh, it has kind of uh, um, almost merged with the... Social democratic wing of the party, which which is a, a bit more what you would term maybe soft left, um, mm-hmm. and and that that, that alliance um, uh, was was forged, I think, in the course of uh, of the Keir Starmer campaign, and he became the leader following the 2019 general election. So, um, what do the left believe? The left uh, believe that I think it can be broken down into. The fact that the system is at, at present, the capitalist system is, is rigged in favour of those who have wealth and rigged against those who work. Mm-hmm. And um, if you've got wealth, it's much much easier to expand your wealth and to expand mm-hmm. 
the capital and your assets than it is to acquire them through work. And that is the sign of a system that's failing. And a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's policy prospectus was seeking to address that, seeking to reprogram the economy so it works in the interest of people that that that, yeah, that work for a living. And and we had a system situation in, in the in the UK. I'm not sure what the situation is in America, but you you are taxed more on on your work yes. than money that you generate from wealth. And and that I, I I find astonishing. And that's that really did that thinking really did kind of inform a lot of policy program it was how can we reverse that how can we yes. um re- redistribute away from the the runaway top one percent to, to to the many uh, and have properly funded public services and uh, jeremy corbyn's been on the left his entire political career there are a lot of parallels with uh, with bernie sanders you know yes. he was elected to parliament to parliament in 1983 and you know, his views broadly have not changed they just uh, he's just applied them to different context as time's gone on. I would think a lot of people would respect that. And I know that, you know, a lot of Bernie supporters here, and I was one, still am, uh, you know, heard a little bit about Jeremy Corbyn and what we heard, we liked, and people were uh, largely supportive of. It sounds like, I mean, what you're talking about here, you know, we have a similar tax system here that uh, uh, there's one uh, system of justice for the upper class, the top 1% or so, and then there's a system for everybody else. It's not really capitalism as much as it is, uh, frankly, socialism for the very richest. And, you know, everybody yeah. else is on their own. You know, tough luck for everybody else. <laughs> so that, that, that's still around. I wonder about the, you know, here we have, obviously, obviously, sadly, a lot of, they call themselves cultural conservatives. I Really right-wing mm-hmm. stuff, the, the evangelical right-wing you don't so much have that there, but is there, uh, you know, going for the traditional white male uh, supremacy uh, there that perhaps the immigration issue maybe sort of blended in with that was perhaps manipulated and used by the uh, conservative party? And did that, did that? Yeah, I, I think some of that, what I would term the culture war stuff, yes. I think that is, it's interesting to see what has read across to the UK from the US and what hasn't. And I, I, I think mm-hmm. that there has, there has definitely been a misunderstanding on, on from, from the, the British rights perspective, particularly, let's just take during the pandemic, for example. Sure. In the US, there's a big kind of anti-mask, anti-vaxxer, you know, yeah. movement. And that, that sort of ties in with exactly the, the, the white supremacism and, yes. and that kind of, that, that kind of, that kind of demographic. But, but really, the cultural conservatives don't really buy into that stuff. They don't really buy into the anti-vaxxer. They don't really buy into um, to the things that, that you might expect. Um, in fact, they're very pro-investment in public services and investment in mm. our NHS. They don't have a libertarian economic outlook. Uh-huh. So, so it is different. I think the context is very different. So, it, it, I don't think the culture war has got the traction that the right thought it might have got here um just simply because the 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 new supporters that they've attracted the new voters um they are um obviously they're pro-brexit but they're also massively in favor of things like a maximum wage and they're massively in favor of you know quite radical economic policies um uh funding the nhs being the primary one Mm. uh so yeah I, i i i it's it's interesting to see how the Conservative Party will 
try to adjust and try to adapt to, in order to keep these new voters and keep these new supporters. One of the things they're doing is massive investments in the north of England. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. this is obviously goes against all of their kind of core principles of laissez-faire market, free market economics. They're making a, taking a massively interventionist approach in the economy to try to revitalize those areas of the country. Well, that's smart politically, I would think. Uh, you know, that's that's what people want. Yeah, that that is Indeed. interesting. And I, I, in prepping for this show, I, I read uh, a fair amount of uh, uh, for and against. And you know, here in the United States, foreign policy it it just doesn't come up in electoral debates. In England, I believe it's different. And in his article on what he calls the tragedy of Corbynism, Dan Glazebrook writes. A tireless support of indigenous struggles against settler colonial dispossession and discrimination the world over from Ireland to Palestine, Chagos to South Africa, he, meaning uh, Corbyn, had also for his entire political career been an advocate for unilateral nuclear disarmament. His consistent opposition to war, not only the Iraq war, had made him not only made him a pariah in the Blair years, but set him apart from the entire trajectory of Labour Party history, end of quote. Of course, this made him unacceptable to the Tories, but did it make him uh, less popular with the Labour Party? What about uh, his observation? What do you think? I think what's interesting about Jeremy is he he got relentlessly attacked by the media more yes. than any yes. other political leader, I think, in history. I think that's a fair thing to say, particularly given you know the, the impact of the media was growing all the time. And I don't think... I'd be surprised if I, if in my lifetime I saw another political leader attacked as much as he was relentlessly day in day out. I would know mm-hmm. I was sort of on the front line dealing with it as his uh, spokesperson. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 I think that the there was a concerted effort, definitely, to undermine his reputation and to um, to put forward uh, an impression of uh, uh, of Jeremy Corbyn to the public that yes. this was an unacceptable. Uh, an unacceptable choice. And what happened in 2016 was, um, I think, a combination of people having very low expectations of him. And then when these, when the rules kicked in around broadcasters, which meant they had to show mm. um, Labour on TV for a certain amount of time each day, and, yeah. and they had to be neutral, had to be more neutrality. People were like, oh my God, actually, this guy, he's not as bad as everyone said, you know, he's mm. actually quite a nice guy. And, um, I like what he has to say, and uh, uh, I like the policies, and actually they're going to they're going to benefit me materially. And I quite like an underdog. It's that kind of you know. That, uh-huh. So the perceptions the perceptions shifted over time, uh-huh. and I think where the media's approach before 2017 was let's just ridicule this guy. He doesn't belong there. He doesn't um, you know their, their their view was that this was an illegitimate political actor. Yeah. I think after 2017 it was like, hang on, we have to take this guy seriously. People actually like him. Yeah. Um, and that's that's when I think um, uh, the the real the real attacks and the delegitimization uh, went up again. Yes, indeed. And people, you know, we talk about the media here as if there's some monolithic media here, and the the far right <laughs> somehow imagines that they all get together and conspire and have one particular party line that they all stick to. Rubbish, of course. Uh, but my understanding, I, the tabloids, uh, et cetera, in, in the UK, 
what it would they they seem to have a bit more freedom to be like just blatantly biased and just uh hammer whoever they want to without consequence uh, more so than here in the united states How, what what about the power of the the right wing tabloid media there oh it's it's phenomenal and one of the worst things is i think um uh, is the fact that even the even the public service broadcast, even the BBC, uh-huh. will do things like a paper review. So you have um, so on, so there's a there's a radio program on the morning that, that's thought to set the agenda uh, for the day, the news agenda. It has millions of, of listeners. It's, it's a radio for today program, and they'll do a paper review on there. So they'll read out the headlines uh, in in the, the tabloids. And that will be broadcast to millions of people, and then that that that, that, that those conversations will, will will continue and um, will almost set the news agenda for the day of the broadcasters. So the newspapers oh have my. more of an impact, more of an impact than their circulation would let on. They yeah. are seen as in, incredibly, they are incredibly influential in, in how uh, in setting the agenda. And I think that 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 was a, a big problem, obviously. Um, and in the UK, we've got, uh, similar to the States, obviously, we've got a press lobby and um, it becomes, I think, political coverage becomes very much, it becomes more like covering reality TV over time than covering the policies and, the, you know, uh, the, the issues. Uh, it's, it's almost like a, a soap opera and, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, uh, and, and it just fuels that detachment that people have from politics, which I don't think ever helps the left, you know. <laughs> That's true, and I, I've I've noticed here in the uh, currently United States that uh, the, the it's entertainment. Politics is theater, yeah. theater, and one of the reasons that Donald Trump won in 2016 amongst his what 16 or so competitors, he was entertaining and. You know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, that's I don't like that, but that's that's the way it is. You know, they they play to their advertisers. The advertisers want people to look at their their stuff, and so they do that. So they, it's interesting. The tabloids, the right wing tabloids, have so much power there, and many working class Britons work in military and weapons related jobs. How much did that complicate matters for Jeremy Corbyn, who's you know, anti-imperialist, anti-nuclear. How did that affect his working-class strength? Do you think? Not, not as much as you, you would have thought in 2017. I mean, there was a there was this moment in the Question Time, BBC Question Time debate, uh-huh. and Jeremy Corbyn was taking questions from the audience, and um, several of them were uh, old white men um, shouting at him, "Why wouldn't you press the nuclear button?" And there was this kind of, oh, God, is this going to sort of cut through and be damaging? And then a younger person put their hand up and said, why do you all want to blow up the world or something like that? Like, well, what do you, you know, what's, why is everyone so keen to launch a nuclear bomb? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, that, and that just sort of, I don't know, it, it didn't have the negative impact we thought. And uh, that wasn't an issue, neither was his views on war, you know, the fact that he can't see war. If anything, I think actually there was a there was a speech that was given in 2017 uh, after the Manchester Arena bombings, and uh-huh. Jeremy it was it was very close to the election, and and Jeremy sought to contextualise that in um, 
uh, Britain's foreign policy and how that might be making us less safe. And uh-huh. when that speech was brief, was, was briefed to the media in advance, there was like, oh my God, do you really want to say this? Um, mm. As it happened, it, it was it was overwhelmingly supported by the public. The public do think that our foreign policy has made us more vulnerable to terror attacks, and that wasn't a con- that wasn't seen as a controversial thing to say. So it was another example of how. Well, it's controversial to the media, but it just shows the media was sort of out of step with public opinion and public perception. So, um, yeah, really kind of, I think what Corbynism did more than anything was challenge the base assumptions of the media and try to appeal directly to what the public thought and felt. And it did so very well in 2017, but I think a lot of things got in the way in 2019. Wow. Fascinating. And just in case people uh, listening here on this side may have forgotten, the the, the Manchester bombing, I, I vaguely remember it was some sporting event, I believe. Tell, just briefly, what was that? Uh, no, it was, it was an Ariana Grande concert, oh, actually. Right, um, right. Yeah, and it was right at the end, uh, a oh. guy with a suicide bombing but as people were leaving, yeah. Oh, unbelievable. I, it just, uh, some humans ain't human, as someone said. Uh, <laughs> so... Brexit happened, and it was it, it didn't divide up normally among neat conservative versus labor divides. It, it, a lot of the populist attitude, like let's take care of, of Britons first, uh, was a big part of, of supporting Brexit. And how, it seemed like the image we got here that it gave Corbyn sort of a hard time, the whole Brexit issue. How did it affect Corbyn in 19? And now that it's in place, how do you expect Brexit to affect Labour's chances going forward? So I think uh, after 2017, there became a huge, a huge internal pressure and organised pressure from different factions within Labour for the Labour Party to adopt a second referendum position. And what this was called as a people's vote. And the people's vote campaign, obviously incredibly well funded by Big, uh, big business and uh, corporate vested interests, but run by a lot of people associated with different factions within Labour, and it was almost used as a a battering ram where they would organise Labour MPs, they would organise, they would galvanise Labour activists, they would uh, try to put pressure on the leadership to to shift its policy on Brexit, and and the people's vote was obviously widely seen as a, um, even though they, even though technically it was supposed to be a vote to confirm the Brexit deal, it was widely seen as a, a way to kind of stop Brexit. So the, the Labour Party was broadly, I think, united around soft Brexit going into 2017. And then this really, I think, gave, um, gave a lot of members and, and vote, Labour voters false hope that Brexit could be overturned. And... When Jeremy Corbyn adopted the second referendum position, um, he did so after quite a lot of, um, I'd say, uh, it took him a long time to come to that position, basically. And in that time, it was unclear where Labour stood. They were losing Remain supporters um, and they were losing Leave supporters because they weren't committing fully to Brexit. And instead of after 2017, us making the case for soft Brexit, as it was called, or, you know, um, Lexit, left-wing Brexit or whatever, um, we ended up in this internal debate about whether to respect the result of the referendum. And uh, 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you don't res- if you don't respect votes, it doesn't right. tend to go down very well. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and the Tory campaign, after all the uh, what what stemmed really from from us voting against the initial Brexit deal as a party, it it dragged on and on. The issue of Brexit dominated British mm-hmm. politics, and and as a result, nothing else was getting talked about or resolved. And so, when the Tories Conservatives ran a campaign in 2019, get Brexit done. Yes. Three words. It was like, yes, you know, people were saying, yes, please, let's get it done. Thank right, God. Right. And we and we were saying, let's have another referendum. So that didn't go down well at all. Well, I know I would have supported another referendum, but I wasn't there. And you know, <laughs> it's interesting how short, simple things make such a difference. Get Brexit yeah. done. Make America great again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just oversimplifying. Yeah, people people were tired of it. I mean, it just went on and on and on and on, certainly. And it was exhausting. And as you say, other things were not able to be talked about. For those who may have just yeah. tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about democracy in England. Our guest today is Matt Zarb, cousin, former spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn. What was your relation, or is your relation, with uh, Jeremy Corbyn? What were you doing for him? So I started with Jeremy uh, in spring 2016 mm-hmm. uh, as a spokesperson so uh, I was responsible for uh, liaising with the press, the press lobby, the broadcasters, and um, mm. yeah, acting as a spokes- spokesperson for the leader, and uh, uh, did so for just over a year. And uh, obviously, stayed in touch with Jeremy and the people mm-hmm. involved in the opera in the operation. Became very closely aligned uh, to, to the to the project. Um, uh-huh. And obviously, obviously, it, it, um, we we exceeded all expectations in 2017 by uh, forcing a hung parliament. Uh, so no no party got an overall majority. We took the conservative majority away. Um, eventually, that led to Theresa May, the prime minister, resigning. And we hoped to build on that, but it just didn't happen. And as I've alluded to earlier, I think in part that was the establishment and the media uh, and the opponents of democratic socialism started to take us more seriously after 2017. Yeah. And, uh, and certainly uh, the, tu- the, 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 the pressure definitely went up again. Uh-huh. They turned up the heat as they are wont to do when they're in trouble. And I referred, <laughs> <laughs> I referred to uh, Glazebrook's uh, uh, article earlier. In that essay, he says, the Israeli-Palestine conflict serves as a neat proxy for growing fears of white decline, rapidly gaining currency on the anti-immigrant right. By drawing attention to Corbyn's support for Palestine, the media were able to successfully associate him with the Muslim other in the great battle for civilization. Boy, we have it like that too. The other. People are afraid of the other. They're manipulated by certain powers to be afraid of the other. But what about that uh, that that whole thing? I mean, I know Jeremy Corbyn supported Palestinian rights and did criticize the state of Israel, as do I, and I happen to be Jewish. As in the U.S., the Israeli lobby fans the flames by conflating such criticism of Israeli policy, which is racist, clearly, with anti-Semitism. Of course, British people find anti-Semitism unacceptable, of course. What was the reality for Corbyn with regard to this whole brouhaha? The reality, um, well, look, I mean, 
uh, anti-Semitism uh, is a problem, a growing problem in society, and it was definitely a problem in the Labour Party. There's no question about that. The problem was that the Labour Party didn't have the, the systems and processes that were frankly fit for a, a, a membership organisation uh, that exceeded 500,000 people, as you, you mentioned earlier, the biggest right. uh, political party in Europe in that respect. So obviously, if you have a, a mass membership organisation, there are going to be instances where people um, will, will be anti-Semitic, will be racist. And there needs to be processes in place and rules in place that ensure that that is dealt with in a, in a sufficient way. And frankly, when Jeremy Corbyn became leader, that wasn't the case. And as leader, you are not this kind of autocrat party that can just do what they like. You have to, it's, it's, there's, a, there's, there's rules and there's a, a governance structure and you can propose rule changes and you can commission reports that inform those rule changes. And that's what Jeremy sought to do. He commissioned Shami Chakrabarti, uh, QC, to uh, investigate anti-Semitism and uh, propose some rule changes. And because Labour, because allies of Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership weren't in control of the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party, her recommendations weren't implemented swiftly enough. Uh. And the, the issue just dragged on and on. And it wasn't until Jeremy Corbyn controlled National Executive Committee and his allies that we were able to make some progress with a disciplinary system. It wasn't until after the 2017 election that uh, the General Secretary of the Labour Party resigned and was replaced by an ally of Jeremy Corbyn, um, who completely professionalised the disciplinary system. So, of course, when you have instances of anti-Semitism that are not being dealt with sufficiently, that obviously uh, is evident. Of a, of a problem and, and that's obviously going to be highlighted and and, uh, and and fair enough you know absolutely that should be highlighted sure. and I think obviously that was used to um, uh, fuel this narrative that Jeremy Corbyn was himself anti-Semitic uh -huh. which I completely I can obviously I don't agree with at all and I would never have worked with someone who I, who I thought that of but um, that's sort of where it led and the Israel-Palestine uh, dimension was was definitely something that that was used as part of that narrative. And I know here in the U.S. the uh, pro-Israel lobby, APEC uh, in particular, uh, you know, Israel can do no wrong, and they're very powerful in terms of uh, their influence in Washington. What about is there a similar Israel lobby? Uh, I, I find it fascinating that uh, that uh, each party gets free time, apparently, as, as unless I'm reading it wrong, on TV there, and I think that's a very good thing. But I wonder, is there a strong Israel lobby that, that really twisted this intentionally? Uh, they, they, they wanted to make it look like that Corbyn was, was anti-Semitic uh, so that there couldn't be any criticism of, uh, of Israeli policies. How, is there a strong pro-Israel lobby in, in uh, the UK, or is it different? Well, there's the uh, there's the Israeli embassy, and obviously there's an embassy for lots of countries. Sure. And uh, you know they, they obviously want to look out for for the interests of, the, of their country, and that that's perfectly sure, perfectly reasonable. They're entitled to do that. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it was any less or more influential than than other lobbies. Um, obviously, there are Jewish communal organisations. 
that uh, obviously that's completely separate and there's the board of deputies of British Jews and then there's the Jewish Leadership Council mm-hmm. and then there's the Jewish Labour Movement and I, I think uh, you know if if all of these organisations are um, cons- expressing concerns about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party I think that that, that should always be taken very seriously I, I don't think there should be an assumption of uh, of bad faith and I, I think the problem that we had was fundamentally one of process of a mass member school organization and it just simply um, wasn't equipped to, to to deal with this issue efficiently yeah. um, when it should have been and, and that was letting down that was letting down people and uh, and it was unacceptable so um, look uh, I, I, I find the the conflation of mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, of uh, views on Palestine uh, with with uh, anti-Semitism, I, I find that that completely repulsive. Yes, um, because you should be able to have an opinion on the policies of the Israeli government or the policies of any government without being accused of uh, of being racist. And actually, I think it undermines it undermines the fight against anti-Semitism if you introduce it in such a way. Mm. Um, so obviously, yeah, any, any examples of that, I'd be opposed to. And certainly here in the United States, the, you know, one image that a lot of people had here was Corbyn anti-Semite. It's just, you know, people like it simple, and, and it's tough to get around that. And I'm reminded in 2004 here when John Kerry, former Secretary of State, was running for president, and he was attacked viciously, uh, dishonestly. They didn't fight back. They didn't have a clear message. And... That's what happens if you don't have a message. It's unfortunate. So what is what is Jeremy Corbyn up to these days? I see there's something called the uh, the Project for Peace and Justice. What Tell us about that, please. Yes, I, I, um, Jeremy, uh, at the moment, uh, has been uh, suspended from the Labour Party by the new leadership. All right, let's the, talk about the, that the, first, actually. Why don't we... Yeah, yeah. yeah why, what, what is his status in the Labour Party? How is it that this very popular, I thought, leader got kicked out of the party. Tell us about that. What does that mean? Yeah, he, he, he is still popular with the membership. And uh, what happened was, as a result of the, the, the anti-Semitism issue becoming so, so prominent, um, the Labour Party was investigated by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission uh, for institutional anti-Semitism. And um, in response to their findings, which weren't the kind of, they weren't, as, you know, it was a very nuanced kind of legal judgment about the processes of, of the party and how it's dealing with, with the issue. Um, in response to that, Jeremy Corbyn in his statement said that uh, the amount of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party had been overstated by the media. And if you look at any polling, the perception of um, the public uh, of, of the, the prevalence of anti-Semitism in, in the Labour Party is like about a third of members are anti-Semitic when the reality is it's, you know, way less than 1%. Uh, so so well, that's what Jeremy was, was saying. And this uh, um, led to, to his suspension because it was decided by the leadership that he wasn't taking the issue sufficiently seriously. Um, it was then a move to renegotiate his uh, his readmission to the party. That was agreed with a clarification statement 
basically published that statement. And then the leadership did something called withdraw the whip. So you can be readmitted to the Labour Party, but then the leadership can basically force you to not sit as a Labour MP in Parliament. So effectively you sit as an independent. So that's where he is at the moment. Um, that's going. That's subject to a legal challenge. I think that's on the way uh, because there was an agreement between him and the leadership. Mm. But this is kind of where we've, where we've got to. It, it, in my view, this is so far away and removed from any notion of anti-Semitism activism that I, I recognise. I just think it's become, the debate has become so um, focused on, on Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, there is, a, there, there is anti-Semitism is a big problem. And whether Jeremy Corbyn sits as a Labour MP or as an independent, or whether he writes that the anti-Semitism has been overstated in the media, that's why people think third of Labour, Labour members are, mm-hmm. are anti-Semitic, or, or whether he doesn't put that in a statement, is not going to really do anything in the fight against anti-Semitism. The fight, the fight against, against anti-Semitism has to be reorientated towards where there is anti-Semitism and, educa- and public education and dealing with hate crimes mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, drawing attention to where, where it's actually taking place. And I, I, find, I find that it, it, in all of this, that's been missed and that's been lost. And that, for me, is the tragedy. That, that's, you know, that it's become so focused on one man um, uh, it's incredible, really. Certainly, as we've seen throughout history, there are often scapegoats. Instead of looking at the broader issue, how to really affect change, how to really make the change happen, it's so much easier just to say, oh, it's his fault, you know? And yeah. uh, mm, that never works. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive, we're talking about uh, what's happened to Jeremy Corbyn. Our guest today is Matt Zarb Cousin, uh, who served as a spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn for uh, quite some time. So who is, since they've booted Jeremy for the moment, I can't help but think he has a lot of supporters, uh, despite the uh, the smear campaigns against him. What's the status of the Labour Party now? Are they back uh, under uh, the leadership of people like Tony Blair? I mean, are they giving up on the on the traditional left? Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's that's the direction I think it's going in. I mean, uh, Keir Starmer has... Can you hear me? Sorry. No, go ahead. Who is that Keir Starmer? It, Keir, Keir Starmer is the, is the new leader. Okay. And he has regular conversations with Tony Blair. Oh, great. And I think that there is a... Um, a concerted effort now to to ensure that the left doesn't have any kind of resurgence. He's not appointed really anyone to his shadow to his shadow cabinet to, um, uh, uh, who's of the left. Um, I think the rhetoric has been uh, very much dampening down the agenda. He did get elected as leader on the premise that he would continue with Jeremy's policy platform, yeah. but uh, has since reneged on 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 many of those pledges <laughs> once he became leader. So, um, yeah, well, it remains to be seen where we end up in 2024. But I feel like if we don't offer something that's transformational, that's going to actually improve the material conditions of, of the working class, of the genuine working class, then I, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. I think we came very close in 2017. And I think if we don't build on that, then we're, we're going to get... Um, we could be out of government for even longer. 
As has often been said, you know, if, if people know what the Republicans here stand for, but don't know what the Democrats stand for, the Republicans win every time. Now, it's true, this was a little different this time, because Trump really beat himself, I think. And it's really yeah. unclear. I have some hopes for Biden. I, th I think he's more of an FDR type uh, than uh, we've seen uh, in the past, but, but time will tell. So is there... Class consciousness has been kind of, in my understanding, perhaps I'm wrong, a base of, uh, of the Labor Party for quite some time. Is the class consciousness being erased? Is it being, uh, you know, the lines disappearing between one class and the other? And if so, how does that affect the future of the Labor Party? I don't. I don't think so. I think actually there's been a resurgence of class politics in the yeah. last ten, yeah. the last five years. Uh -huh. um, I think it's been precipitated by by, by Jeremy Corbyn. I think the Labour Party it wants does want to move away from that, and it doesn't want to talk about things in 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 those terms. I think that's a real mistake because, um, again, when, you, when we talked earlier about about anti-migrant sentiment and. Mm. Uh, the, the exploiting economic tensions. I think if you don't explain very clearly or have a clear narrative about why things are the way they are, right. that vacuum can get very very quickly filled by yes. by the far right and and exploited. So I think it's so so important. It's Labour's interest to to reactivate that class politics sentiment. And, and look, I think um, Bernie Sanders did it effectively. I think we did it effectively in 2017 when it wasn't dominated by Brexit. We accepted the result in the referendum, mm -hmm. and and you know I, th I think I think Keir Starmer has to do the same thing if he wants to try to win. And un unfortunately, I feel like at the moment the Labour Party is trying to position as more competent managers of the status quo than yeah. and then uh, seeking to kind of transform it and offer an alternative. Do you think that's wow? That's that's an interesting theory. I suppose it's a you know way of approaching things. I suppose it has some sense to it. More competent uh, managers of the status quo. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. And I guess you were suggesting the next election is twenty twenty four. It can be called before that, of course, right? It can be. Yeah, yeah. It might well be. We've got a ridiculous system where just the incumbent government a lot of power as to when they decide to call an election, they can just vote for it sure. and with their MPs to vote for it. So, um, yeah, so it could be before, but I think I think that they're going to want to um, recover from the pandemic and, and yes. the impact of that, the economic impact of that before they have an election. So I wouldn't uh, be surprised if it's then. May that come soon, please. I hope it's, uh, <laughs> oh, it's been, yeah, obviously awful everywhere. Now, in a recent article by Jeremy Corbyn relative to the international outcry against the murder of George Floyd and the legacy of racism and colonialism, Jeremy Corbyn wrote, It is that global movement that excites and mobilizes and which labor and the left must be proud to be part of. He also points to climate change and creating jobs for workers now in polluting industries, which I think is interesting because they need some jobs. You can't just whack the industries. And he says, for labor and the socialists today, the issues of poverty, hunger, environmental disaster, and the accompanying systemic denial of rights are the issues that should dominate our thinking, both here in Britain and internationally. To that, I say amen. Sometimes when people see politicians doing the right thing, the principled thing, this is me now, not him, uh, which is not necessarily the popular thing. It sometimes works. It inspires people. What about this uh, 
new project for peace and justice that Jeremy Corbyn is, uh, you know, picked up. What's that all about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, as you mentioned before, Jeremy has a lot of supporters and a lot of influence, a lot of soft power and uh, networks, global networks, and um, huge amount of knowledge as well. Uh, his his ability to, his political compass, his ability to, I think, articulate uh, a coherent position on pretty much any world issue at any time is mm. phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not like a politician. I've worked with a few politicians, and he's quite unique in that respect. Mm. In that, you know, he's not, he doesn't have to be told what to say. Right. Um, and that's the sort of person I want leading. And that is that's what this is about. I think it's just it's about empowering people, um, political education, raising issues, uh, and and running campaigns. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what he's going to do. Uh, that's what he's always done, really, as mm-hmm. a backbench MP when he when he was for all those years. No, that's and, yeah, look, I think, yeah. I was just going to say, that's part of Bernie Sanders' strength, too. I saw him, you know, I've, I've known him since the early 70s, and pff, he is who he is, and people really like that. You know, the, the power structure, the power elite doesn't like it particularly because they may have to pay a little more taxes. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's very popular. Well, here we are on this side of the Atlantic. There are, I think, a fair amount of people who are Corbin uh, fans, shall we say. What is there anything we can do here with regard to his status within the Labour Party or, or anything at all that activists could do here in America uh, to help boost Jeremy Corbyn's future? Oh, I mean, the, the um, solidarity, fantastic. Obviously, he's um, been incredibly maligned and uh, denigrated and attacked uh, by vested interest in the establishment, uh, those wanting to protect the economic status quo for, for, for a long, long time. He's an incredibly resilient person. And I'm sure, like, when the... Um, when he, if, he's, if he's ever in the States, obviously, uh, he, he'll really appreciate the support. He'll appreciate people reaching out to, to his new venture um, and expanding that network. And I think that, that that would be fantastic if you could, if you could all look that up. And that's uh, on the internet. Uh, Project for Peace and Justice is—is is there? Uh, is that you know? If people just Google that, Project for Peace and Justice, is that? Will that take us there? It will do. Yeah, I'll, I could just find the. Um, and he's web address is the web address is thecorbinproject.com. Ah, thecorbinproject.com. That's easy enough. Well, good, and uh, thank you for for. Uh, it, telling us so much about uh, what's been a uh, curiosity here uh, as to uh, what's going on over there. I know that uh, he has a lot of support here. And, uh, you know, the future is, of course, for us to make. And uh, I don't know about Bojo's future. I mean, geez. <laughs> but <laughs> is, is he really popular, do you think? Or is, is his strength? Go- I mean, you know, with the, with the uh, pandemic, it sort of throws everything off, I think. Uh, but, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's astonishing, really, how resilient his support's been. Huh. And particularly even the polling of the Conservative Party is, is just really held up around the 40% mark. There's huh. not been much movement. And I think part of the problem is the fact that they, the Labour aren't offering an alternative. They're not putting forward a coherent alternative vision uh-huh. of how they would handle things differently. In fact, yes. the, the 
the leader of the Labour Party who's earned the nickname Captain Hindsight because whenever something happens, <laughs> he, he tries to claim that he said that should have happened all along. So, uh-huh. you know, already it's just, um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> we'll see what happens. We will indeed. So again, that uh, that website is uh, the Corbin Project. Is that the best way to go to it? Yeah, the Corbin Project dot com dot com. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We're going to hear Thanks so much. Uh, we're going to hear from David Rovix, who's got a song about uh, Mr. Corbin. If you travel around Europe today, you'll find society stratified. You'll find an ever-widening political divide. You'll find a growing left and a right that's growing faster. Convincing people they're the ones to avert the next disaster. You can see the dark clouds growing, taking over every space. Except, oddly enough, in a little place called England, where a growing Chorus screes, I agree with Jeremy. The BBC ignored him, or they treated him like a clown. Transnational corporations said this man will bring us down. The Blairites in the party stabbed him in the back, and then they did it again. But after each attack, he was steady at the helm. The job for which he was picked despite all the accusations. He's an anti-Zionist peacenik who wants to change the country and says the country, I agree with Jeremy. Most members of the parliament wish he'd go away, but as their elected leader, he's set to stay. And when he supports a candidate, they usually tend to win, which makes the Blairites fume while the rest of us just grin between the BBC, the Tories, and all the corporate MPs, the tabloid press, the IMF, and all the landed gentry. They're pulling out the stops to stop the ascendancy of IMF. With Jeremy The case before the nation Is the one that we all face What direction now Goes this human race Do we give up on the missiles And tax the rich a lot Or give up on society And just embrace the rot Among us who would tell us It's the foreigners to blame Not the Blairite Tory billionaires And their rich neoliberal game Each day the numbers grow As each day new people see That they agree With Jeremy I agree With Jeremy